0: Fred I'm one of the pastors. I'll be bringing the word today and it's a joy to have you here. Uh, we're going to, as mentioned, start the book of Romans today. I'm really excited about that. We uh, got together Friday night and just read through the book together, which was a really cool experience. And um, I've been looking forward to this for a couple of months, to be honest, kind of geeking out because uh, this is this is a great book. Uh, I mentioned on, on Facebook this week that the the book of revelation or the book of romans is arguably the most important document in all of human history i mean when you compare the message of romans to things like the declaration of independence or the emancipation proclamation things that are extremely important to us as americans you still see that the message of Romans far exceeds the message of any other document in human history because of what it promises. It promises the gift of eternal life. And so we're going to have a good time getting into this book together. Uh, before we get in there, before we get too deep here, I just have a couple of quick announcements. Our uh, annual Young Adults Conference is coming up April 13th. And so those of you who are in the young adults age range, we'd love to have you come out on the 13th and just um, get into the Word together, worship together, um, challenge yourselves together with some other young adults. You can sign up through our app uh, through or through our website. Uh, This is the last Sunday we're going to have the annual report out. So if you didn't get the annual report for 2023 yet, make sure you grab one of those on your way out. They're on the orange table out there in the fellowship area. Lots of good information in there. God did great things in 2023. And so it's nice to just step back and remember what he has done. But also there's some things pointing forward into 2024 and beyond in there. So make sure you have one of those. We would uh, love for you to have that. And with that, let's open our Bibles to Romans Chapter 1. Let me read. I'm going to just read the first six verses today, and then we're going to dive in. And today all I want to do is I I want to set the table. I want to introduce you to the book of Romans. And so we're going to look at sort of the main cast of characters. There there are are four points that I want to point us to so that we are prepared to study this book together. But let's begin by reading verses 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we consider this passage this morning? Father, as we come into this book, this important message of how we might receive your gift of salvation and live it out with our lives here on earth, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, help us Help us to, to dig deep, help us to, to understand the truths that have the power to transform our lives here in these passages that, that are before us. And specifically today as we, we get introduced to this book, God, would you work mightily among us. Bring us, bring us to understand the, the importance of this message for our lives here today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. James Montgomery Boyce, in his uh, series on Romans, said this. He said, Romans has probably been the object of more intense study by more highly intelligent and motivated individuals than any document in human history. The list of the most monumental and helpful commentators on Romans is a virtual history of Christianity. To study this book is to walk in the footsteps not only of the Apostle Paul But of such theological and pastoral giants as Martin Luther, John Calvin, Robert Haldane, Charles Hodge, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and many others. And so we come to this book with anticipation. Boyce goes on to explain that the anticipation is not just because of those who have studied this book before us. The anticipation is because of the expected change that we know this book has the power to bring about. God has used this letter mightily throughout church history to bring to salvation some of the most important figures in history. St. Augustine was brought to faith when he picked up and read the book of Romans. Parts of the book of Romans were used mightily in in the conversion of Martin Luther from a gospel of works to a gospel of righteousness through faith. And through these men, God has shaped human history. And so today we come with similar expectations. As lofty as that may be, our expectation is that we will be changed. We will be transformed by this same message of the gospel through which God has been working for some 2,000 years now. So what do we need to know about Romans? I want to introduce you to four. Our cast of characters just includes four today. The first, you'll see this if you have the handout that we gave you on the way in. Uh, you can turn that over. There's a place to fill in some blanks, take some notes. Also, I highly recommend to you uh, the Romans scripture notebooks that we have, it's a little blue booklet. There, if you go straight through the doors to a table just like this one, uh, you'll see them there and um, highly recommend that because as we go through this book, and we're going to spend most of 2024 in the book of Romans, it's a great place to record your notes and to have them in one sort of durable place. You know, these handouts tend to, to get tossed in, in any notes that you took or anything that that you learned, kind of go with it. But those notebooks are a great place to preserve your study this year through the book of Romans. And so highly commend those to you if you wanna grab one of those. If you do get one, though, by the way, I recommend you put your name in the front cover somewhere because there's gonna be about 100 of them floating around here for the next 10 months. So it's a good idea to put your name in there. But wherever you choose to take notes, the first point on the handout today is Paul. What do we need to know about the book of Romans? We need to know a little bit about who wrote this letter. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians who were living in Rome. I don't have, I, uh, um, without, the, without the aid of a, of a map, if you picture the Mediterranean Sea in sort of either an oval or rectangular shaped sea with On the top, across the top European countries from Spain and Italy, and then we get into um, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And as you loop around the Mediterranean Sea and you come down the right hand side, if you're looking at a map, that is Israel. And that is where Jesus lived and did his ministry. And that is where the apostles operated out of as their home base and Paul, among the other apostles, would travel, oftentimes using the Mediterranean Sea, but sometimes by land, they would travel throughout Asia Asia Minor and into those European countries and of course all of this at the time is part of the Roman Empire and at the heart of the Roman Empire is the city of Rome and in Rome the gospel has now taken root. The gospel has traveled all the way from Jerusalem in Israel to the Roman capital city of Rome through people who have heard the gospel. There are some uh, several theories, but probably the at least the most likely, in my opinion, is that there were, there were Jews in Jerusalem at the time of uh, Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and the gospel was pro- proclaimed in Jerusalem. And those Jews would have responded to the gospel and gone back home. That's probably, or at least one of the likely ways that the gospel got to Rome. But we know that Paul has not yet been there. He makes that clear in his letter. He has longed to come and see them, and he has not yet been there. He's traveled many other places, and he's preached the gospel. And his main reason for going to Rome, because Paul explicitly set out to go to places where the gospel wasn't being preached, which would exclude Rome because the gospel was already there, his main reason for going to Rome was that they would assist him in traveling even further to Spain so that he could preach the gospel there. He makes all of this known in his letter But the letter begins with these words, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. First thing you'll see on the handout that you can fill in under Paul is that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Among all other things, he chooses first and foremost to identify himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul bore many titles, he had, a, he had a, um, quite the, the human pedigree, so to speak. And he shares some of that in Philippians we'll look at in a minute. But what I want you to dwell on is that the fact that he chose to identify himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Listen to his, listen to, to, to his background as he describes it in, in the letter to the Philippian church. Chapter 3, verse 4 of Philippians says, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, excuse me, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul is saying, as far as Judaism is concerned, nobody had more reason to boast than I. I. He comes from the right lineage. He receives the best training. He, he excels among his peers in zeal, even as far as persecuting the Christian church. This is all before Jesus appears to Paul and he becomes a Christian. He tried to stop the Christian church. We know from the book of Acts that he actually presided over the first martyrdom in the Christian church. Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the gospel at the command of of this Paul. So he says, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. In other words, if anyone was going to please God by keeping the law, Paul would have been probably at the top of the list. But, he says... Having met Jesus Christ, he says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, but everything that was a gain to me I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a, a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All of his human accomplishments... All that he had done to climb the Jewish ladder and to become well-known among his peers, he now considers as not worth comparing to the value of knowing Jesus Christ. He even goes on to say, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. And Yes, that's exactly what it sounds like. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. The discovery, the the revelation that changed Paul's life from being a legalistic, blameless according to the law, persecuting the church in zeal Jewish follower... What transformed him is that he discovered that in all of his attempt to make himself righteous before God, he continually failed. And yet there is a righteousness available to us that can be attained through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what transformed Paul. So here's the story if you don't know Paul's history. He he was called Saul before he came to Christ. And then he was given the name Paul by Jesus. And he, as Saul, he as this Jewish leader, he was out persecuting the church. And he actually had orders from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to go to neighboring cities and to find people who were preaching the gospel and to find those who were spreading this message about Jesus. And he had he had the authority and the orders to arrest them and to put them in jail. And that's what he was doing. He was going about Persecuting the church, and then one day on his way, Jesus appeared to him, and he said to him, "Saul, why are you persecuting me?" (laughs) And and Saul said, "Who are you, Lord?" And Jesus said, "I'm Jesus, whom you persecute." And Paul was actually blinded. I think I think it was for three days. Correct me if I'm wrong. Everything everything in the Bible is either three or seven. So let's go with three. Uh, he was actually blinded and instructed um, to change his, his plans from persecuting the church to now building the church through preaching the gospel. And this so transformed Paul that he considered that everything he had accomplished previously as worthless. Now that he might live this life of spreading the gospel that he once opposed and this gospel that he once sought to stop from being proclaimed, he would actually go on to give his life for this same gospel message. And what is that gospel message? It is that righteousness can be attained based on faith. We'll talk a little bit, about, we'll talk a little bit more about the gospel and and the problem that it solves of man being separated from God. But let me let me continue with Paul just for a minute here. Next thing you'll see on the handout is that Paul was called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. There's two things here. One, the the title of apostle. Apostles were those who were entrusted with the gospel message, given, in, given authority to go out to proclaim this message to the people living not just, in, and not just in, in, in Israel and not just in the Roman Empire, but ultimately to the ends of the earth. And that's why Paul was, had his sights set on Rome. He uh, had his sights set on Spain via Rome. He wanted to get to Rome so that from there he could meet with the Christians, strengthen and build them up, and that they could support him and send him on this mission to Spain. He says in Galatians chapter 1, he says, For I want you to know, brothers, Galatians 1 verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin, I did not receive it from a human source. He's referring to this encounter with the living Jesus. But it came to me by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb, set me apart... And called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. I went instead to Arabia and came back to Damascus. So after three years I did go up to Jerusalem and to get to know Cephas and stayed with him 15 days but i didn't see any of the other apostles except james the lord's brother i declare in the sight of god i'm not lying in what i write to you in other words paul's call into ministry was completely of divine origin and the message of the gospel that he received to proclaim was not just something that he was taught by men but taught by god himself He would later travel to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. He would meet with Cephas, that's Peter, to confirm the message that he had received. But he was taught nothing by them because he had already, by Jesus himself, been taught this message of the gospel. That, oh, by the way, just happened to be the same message of the gospel that they were preaching. And in this way, he was commissioned as an apostle. Though this apostle had the specific task of going to the Gentiles. Gentiles just basically means non-Jews. And so the original apostles who walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry went primarily to the Jewish people to proclaim the gospel. But God saw fit to set apart from birth this guy named Saul who would become Paul to be a missionary, to be an apostle to the rest of the nations. And you and I, unless you're an ethnic Jew, and, and, and some of you very likely are, you and I are the recipients of that gospel as Gentiles. We non-Jews have received this gospel because initially the obedience and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So that's Paul. He's writing this letter the occasion for writing this letter is he wants to make sure they are established in the gospel. He wants, to, he wants to firm up their faith, but he's also building a connection to them because he hopes soon to pass through Rome and to go on to Spain with their help and with their support. We, we talked last time often Paul's letters uh, part of the occasion of him writing was to connect with them for, for the, the needs to support his ministry, and that's what's happening uh, with Paul and the Romans here. So the church in Rome would have received this letter from the Apostle Paul, and they would have read it <clears throat> much like we did on Friday night. Somebody would have got up, read through the entire letter, and and this is how they would have received it. So first we need to know about Paul, the second character, if you will, and uh, and. I'm a little uncomfortable using that word because it's, it's not a person, but rather a thing, is number two on your handout, the gospel. Of great significance in this letter is the message of the gospel. You have Paul, the writer, writing to proclaim to them the gospel. And, and what's what's so unique about the book of Romans, it is the longest and most complete explanation of the gospel in all of the Bible. Paul devotes the first 11 chapters to explaining this gospel and how it has come to us via the Old Testament promises which have been fulfilled in Jesus. And then in chapters 12 through 16, how we ought to live out in light of this gospel. So what do we need to know about the gospel? First of all, the gospel is, on your handout, God's good news. It's God's. It belongs to him. It comes from him. It is his message, and it is good news. It's literally what the word gospel means. It means good news. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the the men that was mentioned earlier by James Montgomery Boyce, Boyce is one of the giants who... Uh, exposited the book of Romans, and by the way, his um, he, he preached in, in the middle of the 1900s, and his sermons are actually recorded. You can go and listen to them on audio. Um, <clears throat> he was an English pastor, and so uh, he, he has a little bit of a different tone to his his preaching, and because of the time in which he preached, and Kim and I were on our way to Erie a few weeks ago, and I wanted to listen to some of these sermons by Lloyd-Jones, and I turned one of them on, and she sat there patiently for about 30 seconds, and then she just kind of looked at me, and she said, are you serious? <laughs> but if you have an appetite for such a thing, uh, they're fantastic. They're well worth listening to. You can just Google Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, Romans, and, and you'll find his, his sermons online. Anyhow, in a, in a different sermon series he preached in Corinthians, he, he spoke to the difference between good news and good advice and um, drew attention to the fact that the gospel is not good advice. The majority of, not just the majority, all other world religions offer good advice. Good advice about how you can behave, good advice about how you can know God, good advice about how you can earn your ticket into heaven, good advice. What's distinct and different about the gospel is it's not advice. It's good news. Lloyd-Jones says advice is counsel. Advice is telling you what you need to do. It's, it, it, it refers to things that haven't happened yet. It's instruction, whereas news is a report about something that has already happened that you can do nothing about, that you can only respond to. The difference in this, he illustrates by saying, picture a king who takes his army and goes off to battle against another king. And if he has success in battle, then he's going to send messengers back to his kingdom to tell the people the good news about their success. And what they're going to do, having had nothing to do with the outcome, but rather tasked with just giving a response, is they're going to rejoice, they're going to celebrate, and they're going to live their lives accordingly. They're going to go their way in peace under the kingship of a king who has won this great victory. On the other hand, if that same king goes off with the same army and he loses the battle, he won't send messengers with good news He'll send military advisors to warn the people and instruct them on how to prepare to fight for their lives. That's the difference between good news and good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel is that the king has won. And he has sent his messengers to tell his people, rejoice and live your lives accordingly. That is God's good news. The gospel solves the biggest problem that human beings have in that we are hopelessly separated from God because of sin. Man cannot come to God. Man cannot fellowship with God. Man, consequently, cannot receive eternal life from God. He is cut off. He is separated from the God who gives life. And the effect of that is we get just, at best, a few decades here on earth in order to respond to the good news. And those who don't respond to the good news suffer the inevitable fate of continuing in being cut off from God for all of eternity. Yet those who hear the good news and rejoice, those who hear the good news that God has sent his son in order to provide a way that we can be made righteous and that by being made righteous, be reconciled back to the God from whom life emanates, the God from whom eternal life is a gift that he delights to give. The good news of the gospel is that what you and I can't do what Paul tried to do his whole life, which was to be good enough that he would somehow be acceptable before God and yet he never was and none of us ever could be. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has already done that. Do you see the difference between that and every other world religion which offers us good good advice on how to be better people? Christianity gives us the good news that Jesus has made available to us a righteousness which we could never earn. That changed Paul's life and changed a lot of other people's lives, too. Perhaps it has changed yours. Not only is the gospel God's good news, but you also see on your handout that the gospel was promised beforehand in the scriptures. The gospel was promised beforehand in the scriptures. A lot of people falsely see an unnecessary disconnect between the message of the Old Testament and the message of the New Testament. And by the way, those, those sometimes can be unhelpful names. Testament means covenant. And so you so you have the old covenant and you have the new covenant. Really, there's, there's essentially one, I don't want to say there's one covenant, but. There's a lot more continuity from the old to the new than those two names might suggest. And even worse, that, that we, I think, impose upon our own thinking and thinking that God was doing something. He was, he was giving people the opportunity to come to Him by works and by obedience in the Old Testament, and now He's given people the opportunity to come to Him by faith and by His mercy in the New Testament. That's not true. In fact, Paul is going to lay out the case in the early part of Romans here about how righteousness has always come by faith. That the works that, that were commanded in the law were useless apart from faith. And that the works that were commanded in the law were a placeholder for what Jesus was going to come and accomplish through his earthly life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. And so what we see here then is that this gospel was actually promised in the Old Testament. What happens in the New Testament is simply the fulfillment of what God said He was going to do in the Old Testament. Paul says in verse 2, He says, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so He would be referring to the Old Testament books. Jesus says this of those same books in Luke chapter 24. Verse 44, it says, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are, those are four categories that encompass all of the Old Testament scriptures, okay? Everything that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what, was written, what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, what Jesus is saying is nothing is happening in this New Testament era other than what had been promised to happen in the Old Testament, The New Testament is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. And Jesus knew this full well. And and when the time came, he opened the minds of his followers to understand how these scriptures spoke to what he had come to do. And so this gospel we're going to see as Paul Paul goes through the gospel message in the book of Romans. We're gonna see him tying it back to what God was doing in the Old Testament. And he'll reference what God promised Abraham and he'll reference what God promised David and he'll point back to that what Jesus has done is the fulfillment of what God always said he was going to do. And so those are two of our characters in the book of Romans so far. The third one you'll see on your handout is Jesus. Not surprisingly, if you want to understand the book of Romans, you need to understand Jesus. Verse 3 says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm I'm still in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, right? And verse 3 says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of good stuff to unpack, Um, and 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 I really appreciated reading or listening through some of those sermons by Martin Lloyd Jones because, man, the way he just goes into incredible detail about some of this is it's inspiring and it's awesome to listen to. But for the sake of time, and for the sake of my inability to do what he did, (laughs) we're we're going to keep it short and simple here because. This is just one one of the four things we're looking at today. But I think it's important to stop and note the divinity of Jesus that is pointed to here. You'll see on your handout that Jesus is God's son and our Lord. He's God's son and our Lord. Verse three, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sonship is the Bible's way of saying that Jesus is, is a part of the Godhead. Sonship, uh, I addressed this a few weeks ago in another sermon, but sonship, the first thing we think of when we think of sonship is we think of a biological descendant. But that's not the sense in which the term is being used here. The, the term is being used to say that Jesus actually shares in the divine essence of God the Father and God the Spirit. The, the three, the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, share the same divine essence. And so, in other words, Jesus is God. That's something that Paul is pointing to here that we need to understand. Not only is he God, but he has been appointed to be our Lord. He, is, he has been appointed so that we might submit to him and obey him and worship him. That's in part, what it means that Jesus is God's Son and our Lord. But there's something else noteworthy here that Paul says about Jesus. The next thing on the handout is that he is a descendant of David. Paul thought it helpful to point out that not only is Jesus as God, one with the Father and Spirit, but according to the flesh, according to his incarnation, because Jesus, who existed before his earthly birth as God, always eternally existed with God the Father and God the Spirit, took on flesh. And so his his, his earthly life had a beginning in that sense. And his earthly in his earthly life, he took on flesh as a descendant of David. Why is that important? Because the New Testament is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And in the Old Testament, God promised David that one of his descendants, David was a king, okay? And he promised that one of David's descendants would be the Messiah king. He would be the king. But some, some bad things happened and David's ancestral line weren't kings for all that long. Very quickly, David's, David's descendants as kings uh, followed through the, the line of Solomon. So, so David had a son Solomon and he, Solomon became king after David and then Solomon and then we follow this line of descendants of David who are kings but they don't do a very good job and God pronounces a curse on the line of David through Solomon through which there will not be another king. And so you have a conflict between God's promise to David and God's curse on the line of David through Solomon that uh, that says there'll be no more kings. God resolves that conflict in the most unique way through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, the Bible tells us that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, not of a human father but conceived of the Holy Spirit in Mary, who would give birth to Jesus. And then Jesus, after he was born, lived, adopted by Joseph, Mary's husband. Now Joseph comes from the line of David through Solomon. That's the point of the genealogy in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. It shows us that Joseph descended from David through the line of Solomon. So now you have a king who has been adopted into the royal line in a way that circumvented the curse. And then we get, to, we get to Luke's gospel and we see a remarkably different genealogy of Jesus. And you say, well, what's going on? Why are there two different genealogies of Jesus? And the assumption is that Luke's genealogy follows Mary, his, his biological and earthly mother, and it turns out, as we see in that genealogy, that Mary also descended from David, the king who was promised the king of kings would come through him, yet not through the line of Solomon, Solomon but through one of David's other sons, Nathan. And so God, in the most unique way, has fulfilled his promise to David to send through his descendants the king, the Messiah king, who would save his people forever. Isn't that incredible? As only God could have done that. <laughs> only God could have made that happen, and that's what he did. And so next time you're reading those genealogies and you're like, I really need to know all these names? Now, you don't need to like memorize all their names, but you need to know the point. The point is, is that God has fulfilled his promise This isn't just a random person from a random mother, from a random line of people. This is the Messiah that God has promised. So that's Jesus. There's much more we could and should say about Jesus, and we will as we go through this book. But let's get to number four. The fourth cast in the cast of characters here is us. Last but not least, you need to understand your place in the book of Romans. Verse 5 says, "Through, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles. That's us. Including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. The immediate audience of this letter, of course, were the Gentile believers who were alive at the time living in Rome. But Paul makes clear that his mission is that... People from all nations outside of the nation of Israel and outside of the Jewish people, his mission is that they would experience obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name. He says he seeks this among all Gentiles. And that's us. The book of Romans was written so that you and I might hear and respond to the gospel and that that the obedience of faith spoken of here in the first chapter of Romans might be manifest among us. Paul wrote, you'll see on the handout, to bring about obedience for the sake of his name, for the sake of Jesus' name. The point of Romans is that believers in every generation from every nation would bring glory to Jesus Christ by obeying this gospel, And that that message which has gone forth from generation to generation all the way to it came to us today would bring about the same type of response that it did in the first century. That we would have a similar response as the Apostle Paul who we as people who have lived our whole lives under the burden of trying to be good enough would now understand that righteousness does not come from our good works, but instead righteousness comes from trusting the one who acted on our behalf. And in response to that, we work. In response to that, we obey. Our works and works obedience are still a part of God's command to humanity. The difference that the gospel has made is that works and obedience are our response to what Jesus has done to make us right before God, to reconcile us back to God. They are not our efforts to reconcile ourselves to him. They are our celebratory response to this good news of the gospel that in him, by faith, we have already been made righteous. And so this is my summary of this introduction. The last thing on the handout is that the book of Romans, we could, we could say it this way. What is the message of Romans? It is Paul's letter regarding the good news of Jesus for the obedience of faith among us. It so says we get into Romans together. We come, we come as those who are hearing good news. We are, we are being... The, the, the good news of the gospel is being proclaimed to us that Jesus Christ has revealed the righteousness necessary to make us right before God and that by faith, that righteousness is ours. And because of that, we want to learn how to live in, in proper response to that gospel. Now, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna celebrate this righteousness through taking communion, communion, is, is a way of remembering and reminding ourselves what Jesus has done to, to attain for us that righteousness. It did not come without a cost. Jesus came and he suffered. And Jesus was crucified to pay the price for our sins. And anyone who has not responded to Jesus' sacrifice with faith and trust, and repentance is still separated from God. But the good news of the gospel is that by faith, we're brought back. By faith, we are made righteous in Christ. And so today, before we take communion, I ask you to examine your own heart. Have you responded to the gospel with faith, and belief, and repentance? Have you confessed your need of a Savior to God Received his forgiveness and committed yourself to live with him as your Lord. If you haven't today, I invite you to do that. I invite you to do that. And all who have, all who have done or will do that today, to you, communion is open. Communion is not for those who, who are still living in rejection of what Jesus has done on their behalf. We're glad you're here. We welcome you to come back we hope that you'll keep listening, you'll keep studying the scriptures, you'll keep seeking after uh, God and what the relationship he wants to have for you, but communion is for those who have already believed. And if you're here today and you say, I haven't done that yet, but I'm ready right now, then I wanna invite you to pray with me. I wanna invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your savior right now. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Any who desire to receive Jesus as, Forgiveness for their sins and his gift of eternal life, I invite you to pray along with me. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need to be forgiven and that I can't earn my way to God. But I believe that when you died on the cross, it was for my sins. I believe that when you died on the cross, it was so that I could be forgiven. So today, I ask you to be my Savior. And I make you the Lord of my life. Forgive my sins. Grant me the gift of eternal life and salvation in you. And teach me to live a life of obedience in response to what you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you took that step today, I would love it if you'd let me know. That Connect card in front of you is an easy way to just say, hey. I." I received Jesus today. I put my trust in him. Uh, But any way that you're comfortable, I'd love to be able to in in any way necessary. But uh, the next few minutes, what we're going to do is, as the worship team plays, I invite you to come. And we've added some communion tables in the back. Uh, Last time we did communion, it it, it took a long time because everybody tried to come down front. And with with, uh, some of the growth we've experienced, we've added some communion tables. So you can go to any of these four. Uh, if, you, if you need a gluten-free option, the little prepackaged cups have gluten-free bread in them. Otherwise, the communion elements are here. Whenever you're ready in the next few minutes, come. Grab the communion elements. Just take them back to your seat with you. Don't take them yet. We'll take them together. I'll come up and, and lead us through receiving communion together. And as we do that, let's just continue to reflect on what Jesus has done in order that we might be saved. Let's worship together.